Hey, this is the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. I'm Bob Hyatt, Doug Moister. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Bob. Bob, it has, uh, I, I, I'm just so grateful that we are on different sides of, of this beautiful country. So when, when we hold our hands out, it's like this big hug over our entire world. So receive this big hug this morning. Well, at least everything between Boise, Idaho and, and uh, Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I guess yeah. you're right. So we're missing out the other thing west of you, but oh, well, we'll extend it. Find somebody else. We'll get Swoboda to help us out with that. <laughs> yes, yes. We'd love to include everybody. Yes. But uh, for now. We got most of most of the country. Uh, yeah, how are you doing? I do pretty well. I was telling someone the other day. They asked me this, the, and they asked me how I was doing, and and I was surprised with my answer. I said I'm actually doing really well. And the word that I use, I said I'm having a lot of fun. And mm. I thought it it surprised me, and then I realized that's actually very accurate. And I I think it's you know everybody knows it's been a a, a it's, it's been a lot of heavy lifting for pastors the last couple of years, last three yeah. years, but there seems to be just a turn in my soul where I, I think I've been reminded that it all doesn't fall on my shoulders, that the Lord is, 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 it's his church. It's not mine. And, um, I think, I think it's just felt very much like I'm carrying what I need to carry and I'm letting go the things that I need to let go of. And so I've been really appreciative of that. It's been a mm. gift, a real gift for me. Yeah. How about you? That's, that's that sounds like it. Yeah, I'm doing well. I mean, but I am kind of wondering as you described that, like, are pastors allowed to have fun in ministry? I mean, is that <laughs> is that even allowed anymore? Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. I probably should re- re- retract this. Some people are probably I'll probably get a phone call from someone like, "Hey, you're not supposed to be having fun doing this." Yeah, I I think <laughs> I don't know. It's maybe. I have been wondering about this. I've been thinking about how I'm in my mid forties and I've been chatting with other yeah. pastors who are in that age bracket. And it, it feels like there's sort of this, this redefining that takes, or maybe even this reimagining that's, that is just natural in that midlife moment. Mm. And I think the choice that I've noticed in front of me is, am I going to, how do I want to show up differently for the next you know, God willing, 40 years in the same church, I would love that. That would just be such a gift to me. Um, but how, how might I want the second half of this to, to just look different, you know, in, yeah. in my, in church and in my marriage and as, as a parent and all these things. And, um, when I was in high school, I was the guy who was just pretty relaxed. I mean, very go with the flow. And then something happened. I think I had kids and that just changed everything, you know? And, and I felt like I probably, I I probably became a little bit too controlling. And I think that really not, not with my children, but just in general, like I have to control these things or, and I don't think I would have called it that. I think I would have just felt the responsibility of it in a very heavy way. Um, and so I just, I think there's part of me that just has felt the Lord be like, Hey, you don't have to grip that thing so hard. Um, you know, yeah. let go a little bit. No, yeah. That's, that's a great place to get to. I think for, I think for a lot of us, like the first half of our ministry life is about what, like, what, what do, what am I going to do? What do I need to do? What do other people expect me to do? It's, it's trying to get all that in line and somewhere, somewhere along the way, we move into the how. Mm. We know what the what's are, and we begin, God opens up a space in us to start thinking about, so how do I want to do yeah. what I'm going to be doing yeah. for the rest of however long I get to do it? Yeah. You know, and that, I think that's a good place to be. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. I know you've been doing a ton of work around group coaching. And, and my yeah. sense is how much of that work, uh, and, you know, shameless plug, I think if, if anyone out there is listening <laughs> and, uh, could, would benefit from coaching, um, yeah, I mean, like, how do you see this whole conversation around from the what to the how really encompassed in, in what you're doing with coaching? Um, it's interesting. It, I mean, uh, the place where it shows up most in my coaching in terms of, of working with pastors generally is in sabbatical coaching. Mm. Um, I think most pastors, they come into sabbatical at a time when they really need it. Like nobody 
take sabbatical when they're feeling good and they're rested and everything. It's usually when others around them are going, if you don't do this, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Or they begin to wake up to the idea that if, if I don't do this, I'm going to run out of gas. And many of them, the presenting question as they move into sabbatical is what comes next? What am I going to do with the rest of, of my time? And I've just always encouraged them that I, it's a great question to ask, but in my experience, um, at least from my sabbatical and from talking to others, that's not the question God is going to answer. The one he's actually going to answer for you in sabbatical is, is the how. How can you show up to whatever it is that you're going to do next in a different way? How can you, yeah, how is it, how is it going to be different? Yeah. And, and I, I feel like there's so many different, there's so many different parts of, of that, that really remind me about how, like when we're in those moments of making those decisions about sabbatical, it's so easy to just think, Oh, I can just, you know, I, this is going to be the time I'm going to figure out what the rest of my life is all about. When in reality it's, and I think this was something that you and I've talked about before is just, no, it's a gift that you need to just to enter into an experience. And, um, yeah, I, I was working with a pastor, uh, a year and a half ago through the sabbatical, a couple months before the sabbatical, through the sabbatical, a couple months after the sabbatical in sort of a, a, a dual spiritual direction kind of coaching role with this guy. And the challenge mm-hmm. is like, don't make any huge, huge, huge life decisions because yeah. that's not real. It's not reality. It's, it's fantasy mode, yeah. right? Like for me, I was yeah. convinced I was going to become a bamboo rod maker at the end of my <laughs> sabbatical. That's what I was going to do. Like fishing rods, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and then I started to actually do some math and I was like, well, shoot, <laughs> like, I mean, you think pastoral work is poverty level, like, man, this would be below poverty level. I'd probably have better luck making tomato steaks to put them in the ground. (laughs) But, but yeah, I think, I think there's something about, about that where maybe the hope is that at the end of a, of a season like that, you know, and I think that's the role of the coach is to help guide that person Mm -hmm. just to the reality of, Hey, what you're thinking is, is really good, but that might be a question that's answered four years down the road, not the question that's answered yeah. in three months. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, I, I think if most pastors can do what you're doing now, which is figure out a different way to show up, if they can answer that question of how, like, how do I live this, this life of ministry sustainably? How do I how do I show up in the right ways to God, to my family, to my community? Uh, how do how do I become that non anxious presence? The what I think almost inevitably f- figures itself out. Yeah, you know the the what just becomes so less intense in our hearts. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it takes care of itself in a lot of ways. So when you were in ministry, like when you were in full-time pastoral ministry, did you ever get to that? Or like, did, was that an easily attainable spot for you? Or or what was some of that journey like for you, Bob? You know, I, I think that my ministry journey, uh, in, there were two parts to it and they neatly fall into pre-sabbatical and post-sabbatical. Huh. And they're each about seven years long. And the first seven years was me learning, um, I, I, I'm going to use the word how, but what I really mean is the what, learning what it meant to be a pastor, what, what to do. And, and like you said, white knuckling this church plant into existence and burning myself out to the point that my elders had to send me away on a sabbatical. And the question I was asking during that time is, is can, can I let this go? Should I let this go? Cause I really, I felt like I didn't have anything left, mm. but the question that kept coming up for me is if I'm not a pastor, who am I? Mm. If, mm. if, if I let this go, what becomes of me? Um, and that's when I began to realize my identity was just way too tied to vocation and I needed to tether it to something a little bit less ephemeral, um, than what I was doing day to day and into something deeper. Um, but what really happened for me was over the course of sabbatical, God resolutely refused to answer the question of what, what, what comes next? What do I do next? 
but helped me to figure out the how. Mm. The how was just much more uh, open-handed, much more uh, letting go of outcomes, doing my best and, and letting the outcomes kind of up to him. Mm. Um, and so in a way, it was like the first half of ministry was learning uh, learning how to be a pastor, and the second half was learning how to let go of it. Mm. And, uh, and to uh, learning how to let go of the role, but to, to actually embody the calling, the, the gifts, the presence of pastor. I think, uh, in many ways, I'm a better pastor now, even though I'm not the pastor of a church than I ever was. Um, and so, like I say, it, it's like God is, has led me into that second half of life where it's more about the, the contents than the container. And it's more about the how do I live this, this ministry life mm. rather than the what of what is my title, what is my role, what is, where do I get my paycheck, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that sounds like a lot of freedom um, to really show up as, show up as the person that God created you to be. Um, yeah. it's interesting because, uh, during the winter time, I take a very, very extremely part-time, part-time job that gets my family a season pass to a lo local ski hill. And I, I wonder my sense is there's probably a bit of a correlation there for me because it, you know, I work two evenings a week. I teach adults. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's been such a fun time because it's, it's almost like it pulls me out of the everyday grind of ministry. And it just reminds me about the, the my neighbors and, and people who yeah. are really different than me. And, and it almost, it all, I feel like it almost sharpens my, my heart for others. And I feel like it, it, yeah. re, it almost redefines on a daily basis when I'm at that place, what it is to be a pastor. And it's not, and, yeah. and, and how I can show up from that. And so it was interesting. I had a really cool conversation with a lady yesterday um, and she was telling me about some of her life and she's like, well, what's your day job? I said, I'm a pastor. And she goes, really? She's like, that's the coolest job I, I've ever thought of. And I'm like, you are the only person who has ever said <laughs> that being a pastor is a cool job. Oh. But I, but it was neat because I was like, you're right. It really is a cool job. And I said, the fact that I'm able to, you know, listen and be present. And we have these skills that we've learned on how to listen and be present. And we actually believe that we, when we listen and are present with others, that it's possible that, that the spirit will show up and that, that seeds are planted and, and God is at work deeply, mm -hmm. which is really a great segue into the conversation that you all are about to listen to with uh, uh, a new friend of ours, uh, Benno Van Toren. Uh, he is an apologetics guy, which some of you are rolling your eyes or thinking, oh, not apologetics. Other users are uh, some of you are cheering. Um, but a lot of his conversation is really, he, he worked in, in universities, uh, learning how to have conversations about Jesus with people that are very different than mm -hmm. him. And uh, most of what he talks about is the gift of listening. And I think there's something about that. And, and really, when it comes down to the end of the day, I think it it just it was just such a helpful conversation for that thinking mm. about apologetics and evangelism all those things aside there's just such deep skills to actually listen listen to someone else there was a spiritual direction book that that we had I think it's just called the art of spiritual direction or something like that or spiritual direction I, mm. I cannot remember the the author of it at the moment but there's this line in there uh, a quote from this guy and he said uh, the gift of spiritual direction is you can you can listen someone into existence mm. and I thought to myself I think that is the gift of of what pastors can be and and how pastors can show up in in all situations yeah. is just listening someone into whether it's fear or whether it's it's honoring and holding space for someone who's really angry or upset or happy or joyful or sorrowful or whatever there's just yeah. something that takes place in those interactions and and I think that's part of who God is he listens to our hearts too um yeah 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 Doug, can you imagine if uh like I, I went to bible college and I had a preaching class I went to seminary I had another preaching class or two uh, it wasn't until I dipped my toes into a counseling degree 
that had a class that taught me how to listen. Hmm. Can you imagine hmm. is if, if in our training, in our, in our education of pastors, if we put just as much emphasis on listening as we did on preaching Dang. and speaking. Yeah. Can you imagine that class proclamation and silence and not just talking about the silence <laughs> of the people who are listening to you talk, but you learning yeah. how to proclaim and shut up. Yeah. That's good. How to listen. Yeah. How to listen. Well, folks, we hope you enjoy this conversation with our friend Benno. Well, welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor. Benno, it's really good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today. It's a great joy to be with you. You are the first person that we've had who has been on the 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 CET or the CE time zone. And so I'm yeah, thank you so much. That's great. It it works well, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. I I just love how you're, you know, probably drinking coffee to stay awake and I'm drinking coffee <laughs> to get started for my day. So that's it's a good thing. Um yeah. so can you tell our listeners some of your background, who you are and your particular calling to serve the church? Yeah. So my name is Benno van den Toren, which is a very uh, Dutch name, uh, although I spent much of my life uh, abroad as a missionary. We served in the Central African Republic, French-speaking Africa, uh, in theological education with a family there. Um, and that's basically where, say, Christianity from the South and Islam from the North and Africa meet each other for eight years. Um, then we moved uh for a year to Canada, but via that year, uh, we we came into Oxford, where I was teaching theology uh, at Wycliffe Hall, uh, a college uh, at Oxford University. And since about uh, eight years, I'm uh, now in the Netherlands. Again, these periods seem to suit me, um, where I'm a professor of intercultural theology, uh, which means that I reflect on uh, what we can learn from different cultural expressions within the church uh, uh, in theology, and recently, actually, the Synod of our church, Protestant Church in the Netherlands, gave me an extra task by asking me to reflect on uh, what can local congregations in the Netherlands and Europe learn from the global church, the worldwide church. So, great task. So, you get a chance to really think on much higher levels of the church in terms of not just in not just a very specific local church, but the local church in the Netherlands and also the global church. So. What is encouraging you right now as you're thinking about the global church? What, is in, what, what encourages me is that the gospel seems to be able to be expressed in so many different contexts, in so many different uh, worlds. It, it speaks to so many different people. So you see people turning to Christ uh, in uh, highly educated groups, uh, but also uh, uh, by the work of rural evangelists who, who walk on sandals from one village to another. Uh, you you uh, see uh, churches being uh, full of enthusiasm in places where majority are Christians, like in some countries in Africa, but you also see uh, people coming to faith uh, in majority Muslim countries or uh, in places where, like, like China, where uh, uh, the church has been uh, politically on the back foot for many years, but where at the same time, people courageously continue share the importance of the gospel. So that's really encouraging. It's not one sort of world where the gospel works, but in so many places speaks to people in different ways. So a lot of, a lot of what you do is really trying to help people to figure <clears throat> out where those on-ramps for the gospel may be within a particular cultural context. Is that correct? Yeah. And maybe also where blockages are. So when you think about a place like the Netherlands, uh, we are in a situation where uh, in the experience of many people, uh, the church uh, has been going down uh, for many decades and in some areas pretty fast. And uh, you also try to understand sort of in a mirror of other contexts in the world, you know, what, what might be issues that we need to face here and that we need to face head on in order to find new ways to express the gospel that speaks to people, or even to help people to hold on to it uh, if they find it quite hard. Mm, that's really helpful. So you co-authored a book with Kang San Tan uh, called Humble Confidence, A Model for Interfaith Apologetics. Can you tell us the story behind this book? 
Yet it is the the the, the practical story is that I've been a lot uh, involved in reflecting about apologetics in the West. Then I uh, moved to Africa and realized that uh, actually many of the apologetic reflections I've been involved in in Europe were answering questions that are basically questions of sort of the uh, academically educated modern or postmodern Westerner. And I realized that many of my students in Africa that I taught apologetics were asking completely different questions. You know, they were asking a question like, um, um, if uh, you come to a, a pastor and you ask for prayer and you're not healed, and you come to a, a traditional doctor and he sort of does a ceremony with you and you are healed, how is that possible? You know, what does mm. it say about God? That's a mm. very different question that no apologetic handbook in, uh, in Europe would answer. And so I started to think about the relationship uh, between apologetics and people's cultural backgrounds. And then after conversations with uh, Kang San, who became uh, a, a friend, uh, we started thinking about other religions as, in fact, uh, shaping entire cultural worlds and shaping people's minds and people's perceptions and people's longings and people's desires. And you started wondering if people are so deeply shaped by this entire worldview, way of living, uh, way of shaping your community, how can you actually communicate the truth of the Christian gospel with them? Is that actually possible? And if so, how? What are ways of doing that? So then cultural apologetics to different cultural contexts became interreligious or interfaith apologetics, and that became another book. So this is fascinating to me because my, my sense is you're, you're, you're really taking a look what is behind what the shaping forces are within a particular cultural context and, and how a lot of those particular cultural contexts have deeply religious ties, correct? Mm. Yeah. And so can you give us maybe a story? And I, and I love the story that you already shared about, um, you know, someone in Africa who's asking the question about healing, right? I think that's, that's, that's really powerful. But can you think about how does that work as we think about cultures like in the West that have such a deep Christian background, but yet are, are almost like really away, like so far away from from the story and from what the the context of the gospel really is. Yeah, I think that even in the context of the West, you need to, you need to realize that uh, um, for many people, their secular worldview functions like what you might call a a pseudo religion. So it is a combination of a worldview in which there is very little place for God. And if there is a place for God, it's a God that doesn't bother you too much, that is a bit at a distance. Um, but it also has a set of ideals uh, that sort of fits well with that worldview and that start shaping your life. Um, it also is related to a whole lifestyle in which there is then little space for God. Um, and that means that when you invite someone uh, to Christ, you invite them to a different worldview, a different lifestyle, but also a, a, a different goal in life. And all that needs to happen sort of in one move, not necessarily a short move, but all that belongs together. So, yeah, so thinking even about the West as a, as a pseudo-religion or at, at, of the secular Western worldview as a pseudo-religion in that sense is also helpful. That's yeah. really, that is really helpful. So you talk about this idea of the model, and I think you've you've started to tease that out a bit. But can you tell us what is the model for interfaith apologetics? And I appreciate it. Sounds like there's kind of a there's been a journey of apologetics and how it's sort of just been this general statement, and then you're moving it. You and Kang San are moving it into something a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, I I think we we try to move between two. Um, contrasting practices that that deeply shape how we deal with different religions in Christian ministry. On the one hand, there are uh, many approaches that hesitate to discuss the question of truth in interreligious relations. That may be because people are are are, are postmodern and they do think that questions of truth are no longer relevant in that respect. Uh, 
it may also feel that they believe that their own truth, uh, truth claims are so deeply bound up with their location in the world that they find they cannot communicate it to, say, a Muslim or a Hindu. But more often, I think it's the postmodern approach that religion is not about truth, it's about something else. And uh, both of us are quite deeply involved in interreligious relationships and communications, and we feel that that's not that's just not a realistic option. If you discuss with a Hindu, with a Buddhist, with a Muslim, questions of truth come up and you need to address them. You need to face them head on. On the other hand, there are certain styles of Western apologetics that suggest that you can develop neat arguments that would tell you that the Bible is the word of God, that uh, Christ performed miracles, that Christ is the Son of God, etc., and that would hardly be aware about what the enormous barriers are for a Buddhist, a Hindu, or a Muslim uh, to actually accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Son of God, when when that doesn't make sense to them, when that actually doesn't in any sense reflect something about a great understanding of God, and um, and when it doesn't fit their lives and their ideals, so we try to look for, you might almost say, a holistic embodied form of apologetic dialogue that does take questions of truth seriously, but realize that the people you communicate with are deeply embodied in a lifestyle, in a worldview, and that you need to address them as whole people. Uh, furthermore, we also realize that in doing so, we're not nearly only telling them we need to take them serious as they are. It's not that we have collected a good bunch of arguments, but we want to listen deeply and intently. Uh, that That's also why we like the word dialogue a lot. You know, we, mm. we like dialogue. But the moment you start dialoguing, you also discover that questions of truth matter. Um, once myself, I was, this has actually deeply shaped my whole uh, experience in this respect. I, I lived for a year in, in, in Vancouver uh, as a scholar in residence, got to know a fellow scholar in residence who was actually e an economic historian. And uh, he was a Buddhist from, from South Korea. And for about uh, six months, we met each other once a week, trying to understand each other's religious convictions. And uh, we we just couldn't avoid asking questions of truth. Uh, in that case, actually, none, none of us got converted to the other religion. Interestingly, both of us desired that the others would see what we could see, what what was so important for us. Um, but but we we both discovered, I think, a lot about the other, about God, but even about our own faith in the whole in the whole process. But we we also discovered that these questions of truth was unavoidable, but deeply embedded in who we were, in our traditions, etc. Mm. I think that's a really helpful story because, right, it, it's almost like there's this pressure that people put on themselves, like, okay, I, I've got to, I've got to win this person to Jesus. And, and you're kind of saying we, it, it sounds like there's also this deep reliance on the work of the Holy Spirit within these conversations. Yeah. And also realize that people come from quite far, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, I was once invited to uh, speak in a mosque, a Shiite mosque in Manchester in England to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, no, not about the Holy, also the Holy Spirit, but you, you refer to the Holy Spirit. That's why the word came up, to, about the Trinity. The Trinity is mm. for many Muslims an odd doctrine. Uh, and I think I was invited because they thought if we invite uh, a theologian to talk about the Trinity, a Christian, then he it will sound so odd. No, no, this will not be in any way difficult for us. Um, because for them, the doctrine that there is one God who could never have a son, who would never have something like a son crucified, and that praying to a son would be idolatry, that's so obvious. And the Christian doctrine is so odd. Um, you know, it's just not an option. At the end of that conversation, a very long conversation, about two hours in this mosque, many questions going on. Um, I tried to explain 
how actually for a Christian the, the doctrine of the Trinity felt and that actually Christians accepted it simply because this is how they had come to know God through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. This was the only way to do justice to who God is. And uh, also how beautiful it was. And afterwards, uh, uh, a young uh, uh, lady said to me, now I can understand that someone as intelligent as you uh, can believe in a doctrine like the Trinity. I thought it was a great step. You know, mm. uh, not that she, she thought me intelligent, but that she thought that intelligent people could believe in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. For many Muslims, Christianity is just odd. It's irrational. It's a corrupted religion. Even if for some reason they would find it attractive, they would not even consider it. After such conversations, people can start believing that this might actually be an intellectually satisfactory option which you could consider and before she would not. Mm. So really, and I, so, all right, so let me ask you a question. This is probably a little bit under the surface, but so what's going on in your heart in the midst of these, like being invited into a space like that to speak? Some, sometimes it is, um, it is also a bit of a struggle, to be honest. Uh, not, it, it, it's, slightly disconcerting <laughs> when when i was writing this book part part of the chapters of the book i wrote uh while being in kuala lumpur because that was uh where kang santan lived and uh, i wrote it in an office 14 story of you know this mega city uh, uh kuala lumpur um and in sort of 500 meters around this office there was uh, a, a hindu temple or two or three hindu temples two Chinese temples, a Buddhist temple, uh, a mosque, and a couple of churches. And at a certain moment, you start saying, who on earth am I to say that my religion is the best? <laughs> you know, and that, that's precisely, of course, what many people feel when they are confronted with all these different religions. Where do I actually get the courage from? Um, but then it's also, uh, also deeply encouraging to discuss the, the richness of the, 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 different, the, the Christian tradition, but much more than that, to find your anchor in the fact that you do not embrace this religion because, you know, it makes most sense of the world or because Christians tend to be more intelligent, but because God came to us in Christ to show who he is and to break, break through all our human creations and conceptions of God. And in the end, what we do is simply witness to who God is in Christ and point to him and show that, that, it's, that it's trustworthy what happens there. But you're basically pointing away from yourself. Because if you would need to say, oh, uh, Christians are the most intelligent, see me, you know, you can't. People in other religions are often deeply intelligent. Many have deep religious experience uh, in terms of meditation, reading their scriptures. Many of them are way more committed than, than Christians you might know. And yet you can find courage to witness the Christ there, and not because of Christians, but because of who Jesus is. appreciate the honesty because it, uh, my sense is someone may hear this and think oh like he's just gifted in that way he just walks into it he's ready to talk about anything at any time and i think in yeah. reality you're, you're right there is that there's that i i just i appreciate the honesty yeah. so so I, I think oh, go ahead an, an important thing about apologetics in general at least the people i meet um i think that many people are not convinced by an apologist who always has a quick and a slick answer mm. and never has any questions. Uh, mm. Many people, at least I find, do not find it credible because their questions are too deep. Yeah? So what they, they want to see in you, someone who can take their questions seriously, uh, who does not always know all, need to know all the answers, 
who sometimes says, I hadn't thought about this, uh, let me think some more, and then show that this person still find that, that you've still reason to have confidence, that you mm. still trust this God. So it's not about having all the, the quickest answers, the best rhetoric. It's about being honest and showing uh, what, what your foundation is. Mm. So even there's a, there's a sense of a winsomeness in and of itself that just really also works in that space. Yeah, and I think a certain vulnerability is part of that mm. winsomeness. Mm. That, that's, that's also good. why we, uh, we call the book Humble Confidence. So this combination mm. of confidence and humility is, 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 is important, I think. Particularly, mm. of course, because we, we, we live also in a world where uh, Christianity has this heritage of associations with, uh, with colonialism, with power. And the moment you, uh, you, you present too much power, there will be many people who no longer are interest, interested in you if you say, you know, this is, this is, this is simply the biggest thing that ever happened. Uh, and, 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 and show to all the, cultural qualities Christianity ever has had. Actually, many of those cultural qualities have crumbled. But for many people, that's not attractive. It's one of the downsides of Christianity, actually, a post-colonial era. Hmm. Interesting. So how does, how does a, someone who has been studying interfaith apologetics for a long time look at chapter Acts or Acts chapter 17? Um. For me, that's 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 a great example of of, of apologetics, um, mm. uh, because uh, in 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 a number of ways, you know, uh, Acts seventeen, uh, Paul coming on Mars Hill. Um, first of all, he he comes there, he sees all these altars, he is deeply disturbed about the idolatry. Actually, he's he's stirred in his heart, um, but when he starts speaking. Uh, he is dialoguing, and he tries to take people seriously. Uh, he is not uh, saying, "Oh, this is all so terrible. Let me know the truth." He, he, uh, let me tell you the truth. He's, he's, he's really trying to listen to them and taking them as seriously as possible. Um, he is making use of points of contact. You know, we we know that in that chapter he was uh, quoting uh, 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 Stoic thinkers. You know, in God we live, um, in in Him we have our being. Um, actually, if you look quite strictly, this this is sort of a more pantheist worldview, uh, which is uh, not not necessarily entirely comparable with the Christian faith. But he uses what he can use a bit, uh, and 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 uses it to build bridges, but then builds bridges so that he can talk about Jesus. And he says, and in the end, God has given. Uh, uh, raised his son from the dead, and that's the final set testimony of uh, of of who this God is. Um, that means that uh, if 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 I'm talking to Muslims, um, I'm not first of all stressing that I find their idea of God very problematic. I try to link to the idea there is one God, uh, that this God is our King, that we should obey this God, that they're, that that they are afraid of idolatry, and and yet try to move beyond that by pointing to other aspects of God that we have found uh, in discovered in Jesus. Mm. Wow, that's really good. I, I love that example. Um, so talk to me a little bit about how, like if, if you could just have that prayer um, fulfilled, like, Lord, my prayer is a local church would get get their hands on something like this or begin to think about interfaith apologetics, and this would be what I hope the answer would look like. Like, how do you see this helping the local church? I would hope that in some context, local church present ministry in which people with uh, different religious backgrounds can come in, where, uh, where, they can, uh, where they can enter into activities together. So in Utrecht, which is a city in the Netherlands, we have a community that's called the House of Peace, which is a Christian community that used a lot of Arab Christian songs, etc., but also relate to the Muslims around, the Muslim community around. And, and they're both very open in their faith, very confident in their faith, but very welcoming. And the two go together. Um, not all churches have those activities, but... Um, 
many churches have members that in their daily lives relate to people of other religious backgrounds. Um, so uh, they 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 will relate to uh, to people who are uh, are in their offices and that have a, a, a Hindu uh, Muslim background, and which groups are dominant will often depend on where you live. Eh? So in, in in Europe, we find quite a number of Muslims. Uh, in continental Europe, from Morocco, Turkey, uh, in 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 England, you'll find quite a number of Hindus and Muslims from from Southeast Asia, and in in North America, that that that's different again. So so help church member to witness more confidently, but also to listen more confidently. You know, to to learn that I can really listen to what moves people, how they stand in their lives, what are excited about without being afraid that this will in some way sort of uh, chip away at my own faith, you know? Uh, so yes. so encourage yes. church members to have those those conversations, build those friendships. Yes. So I, that, I, uh, yeah, sorry. You've mentioned listening a few times and, and I would love to pick, I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. What are things that folks should be listen here like trying to listen for like what are some markers potentially or some on ramps or some opportunities or things that we should just be uh, aware of as we're listening because I, I appreciate what you said right it's there's that fear of well if i listen too much are they going to convert me or um you know i'm just trying to listen for a way to jump into the conversation and and you know get jesus right front and center where it sounds like you're you're talking about well you need to listen deeply for 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 more than just uh where can i start talking about the lord yeah. but yeah so what are the, some things that we should be listening for that that's a good question i i i would say li listening is is partly simply to to get to know people um uh listening is uh, it depends of course where where you meet people you sometimes you get to know people sort of a little bit, um, um, you know, I can meet a, a, a Sikh believer uh, on a railway platform, and uh, it's easy to start a conversation about their faith because you even see it in their dress, and you ask, you know, are you a Sikh? How did you become a Sikh? Etc. Um, that's different from your neighbor, but um, I would also, in a very positive way, challenge people to tell what they believe and how they came to faith and uh, what it gives them and what their questions are. Um, but as a, as a quest, uh, the moment they would feel, oh, this person is only trying to get his own point across, then they will not be very open because they know that if they say something negative, they will make themselves vulnerable. Um, but if people are aware that you really interested and you are willing to be vulnerable yourself then they may really open up um i like a question i think it's it's kelly clark who who asked it somewhere when he when he says if you if you meet someone from those new spiritualities you know there's there's lots of new spiritualities around spiritual seekers that look for god in nature in art in meditation in yoga and he says a great question to ask is uh, can you tell about can you tell me about your spiritual journey so far? It's a great question because they can talk about their spiritual journey, but it also presupposes that their spiritual journey has not ended yet. So you invite them to share that they're still on a journey. They're, they're, they're not yet there, which invites them to, to really look for more. Um, and many people are genuine seekers, I think. They really want to know more. If people have spiritual needs, uh, Many Westerners, of course, have also their, their spiritual needs deeply buried, but that's not true for all. People have spiritual needs and, and people have spiritual discoveries and longings. And we, we can relate to them. And if people share them openly, uh, we may also feel free to share uh, why we feel that Jesus for us is the answer and might potentially also be that for them. It, it reminds me of a story a friend of mine shared with me about a spiritual director who uh, an atheist contacted him and said, I'd, I'd like to meet for spiritual direction. And yeah. the first place, like just hearing the story was great, but he said, the first question I asked is tell me about the God that you don't believe in. 
Yeah. And and I just thought like what a clever way to begin to engage someone in a conversation around spiritual yeah. things. And um Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's helpful because for so many of us I think there's this tendency to feel the pressure of like I've got to figure this out. And I I like how you're talking about the importance of vulnerability. Um and the importance of even coming with some of your own questions and just being being uh inquisitive and staying curious in the conversation just to see <laughs> where the Lord may be going. Um what are and, and like, find ways find ways for yourself to discover new things yes. about Jesus. Yeah. Mm. Can you t- so say more to that 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 we would discover more things about Jesus in that conversation? I'd love to hear more about that. If you get deeply into other religions, you also discover more of the the contrast, the differences between Christianity and 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 other religions, and you become more you become more grateful for what you actually have received. Um. In, if you live in a Western context where secularization is the dominant, a secular worldview is the dominant worldview, that's pretty much the case in the Netherlands, then uh, you you get a sort of sense, oh, all religious people about roughly the same thing. There's actually quite a number of people think. Uh, and and uh, maybe even there is a sense that all religionists should, should join together, you know, to fight a secular worldview. But actually, religions are deeply different, and you discover it in encountering other people. Um, concrete example of my meeting with my uh, uh, Buddhist friend in, uh, in, in, in Vancouver. Um, I discovered through this conversation that he was really longing to take his religion more seriously, but he could not because he felt that um, he could not yet, he said. He could not yet. He had earlier in his life, he had, he had uh, considered becoming a Buddhist monk uh, but he'd become an academic, was married, had a child. And he said, I can only really take my Buddhism seriously if my child is old enough to look after himself. And then I will need to leave my wife and my children to really disengage myself from it. That's actually the Buddhist thing, you know, mm. because really being attached to someone else is a cause for suffering. You need to loosen yourself from any attachment to be really free. I'm also married. I have three children. And I realized, I said, whoa, I believe in a God who is personal, who has shown in Jesus that love between people is really something valuable. Uh, It's something we can grow in. And that if we do that well, we can grow closer to God. We can grow closer to God while growing close, closer to ourselves. When we grow closer to, uh, to each other, when we clo- grow closer to God, we also grow closer to each other. It, it, the both constraints are that what a great gift that I, I, I see in Jesus that I don't need to leave my wife and children in order to be closer to God, but I can grow in my love for God while growing for them and 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 actually be be a better friend husband father when I've, I I I I try to live as Christ invites me to live you know it's a great mm. gift yeah yeah the, it is a great gift to recognize that who God is and how he has come to us in Jesus is just it 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 ha- it really does change everything and i think to to be able to enter into a relationship where you respect where the other person is coming from and you are willing to listen to where they are is just it it's almost like that is such a gift to that person hmm. in the midst of that so yeah last question and then i know um we, we are we are I, I feel like i'd love to just sit and have i have a hundred more questions in my brain but i i only have time for one more and so what what might what are ways that you can see uh that you could encourage pastors to begin to think about uh about engaging people who are different than them realize that for many people um their religion is something that is very much part of their daily life so at least in 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 Europe there's a tendency to very much separate our private and public lives and 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 religion has become something of a private life that and that and many Christians haven't interiorized that and actually for uh for many other uh uh 
people from other religions. That's not the case. Their religion is pretty public, and they're happy to share about it. And they're also then quite happy to realize that you have a different religion. So that's not a, that's not necessarily a danger or a deal breaker. No, they they're happy to listen to you as long as they can also share with you. So just engage in conversation. Um, um, I've actually myself uh, also that, and that, that's at a very different level. I enjoy reading conversion stories of people from other religions who found Christ. Um, and that, that that gives me very concrete stories about what people discovered when they came from very different backgrounds and saw something in Christ that they had not known before in their earlier religious context. Uh, and that is, uh, 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 that is something that deeply enriches me in my own understanding of who God is. It's very accessible. There are many of those stories. Um, and that, again, gives me um, <clears throat> reason to listen to others, share my story with others, gives me also words to do so and understanding where people come from. Mm, that's really good. Is there a particular story, conversion story, that that is just very close to your heart or that just sticks in your mind? I think there would be there would be different ones. I I, I really appreciate the story of uh, uh, Rahil Patel, who is a Hindu who for many decades followed uh, Gujarati Gujarati guru, searched uh, uh, really for fulfillment, uh, could not find it, and finds it later. Uh, it when when uh, he has a very personal experience of Christ. Um, in in the US, the uh, uh, the story of uh, Koresh is quite 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 well known, who uh, who had much more of an intellectual struggle actually, uh, 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 with many questions about uh, about Islam, and in the end uh, found Christ. Very encouraging uh, story, I also find. So so those mm. would be stories. But there's actually quite a number of examples, and you see actually people have so many different ways to to find Christ. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Benno. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you leave us with a, a blessing or a prayer or a benediction? Yeah. Just a short prayer. Um, oh Lord, we we pray that as we see this sometimes uh, bewildering world of religions in which people uh, create so many images of you, that uh, you guide us and that you'll help us through all these different exception, uh, expressions of, uh, of religion to see uh, the wonder and greatness of your son, Jesus Christ. And give us uh, confidence and humility to meet others and to share with others. Amen. Amen.